0: children were, were lined up in the cafeteria of a Christian school for lunch. And at the head of the serving table was a bunch of apples with a note from the teacher. The note read, "'Take only one. God is watching.'" At the other end of the serving table was a large stack of chocolate chip cookies with a note quickly written by one of the students. It read, Take all the cookies you want. God is watching the apples. <laughs> I just that's funny. That's good. <laughs> In some respects, is that rain? Yeah. Wow. In some respects, members in our next church in Revelation may have had the same idea, thinking that God's attention was directed elsewhere to the bigger churches and to the larger cities. He's watching the apples, not the cookies. But that was not the case, as they would soon find out in their letter from the Lord. We are continuing our our study of these letters to seven real churches in Asia Minor. And we've already looked at the first three. The church in Ephesus, you remember that? The church in Ephesus, which was an unloving church. The church in Smyrna, which was a suffering church. Remember, they are being persecuted. And the church in Pergamum, which was a compromising church. This morning, we'll be looking at the the fourth church on this postal route. I think you see it behind me there. And that's the church in Thyatira. You see, Thyatira starts to come back down. Pergamum at the top, and now it's starting to come back down this loop to Thyatira. And as we have done in the past, before we take a look at the church, I want to first take a look at the city. Okay? I think you might see a slide of some of the ruins of, of Thyatira. Thyatira was the smallest... The smallest of the seven cities. A town situated in the shadows of its larger neighbors, Pergamum and Sardis. It was a a military town as it housed a a Roman garrison. And it could also be described as a a blue-collar town. A working man's town town, due to the manufacturing and trade industry that was predominantly found there. The manufacturing of textiles, such as woolen goods, appears to have been a a booming business in Thyatira, as well as their their metalworking industry. But they were most famous for their dye making. They were famous for producing the much sought after purple dye, which was a color worn by the Roman elite. Today it's known as turkey red. Turkey red. Do you remember Lydia in Acts chapter 16? Remember that name? Lydia. Acts chapter 16. She was on a business trip to Philippi. And she was a trader in purple fabric. And she came from Thyatira. If you recall, Lydia was one of the Apostle Paul's first converts when he visited Philippi on his second missionary journey. Now as a, a blue-collar town, Thyatira was also known for its many trade guilds. These guilds were somewhat similar to our powerful trade unions in our own country. And it was difficult to for a worker to make a living unless they were members of one of these trade guilds. And unfortunately, these guilds were linked to the worship of pagan gods. And let me explain. Each trade guild had its own particular god. A guardian guild god, if you will. And as a member of a trade guild, you would be expected to attend all of its meetings, all of its functions, and fully participate in all of its activities. So at these mandatory meetings, at these mandatory functions, which were likely held in a pagan temple, members would spend a little time paying tribute to their guardian god, making some type of sacrifice. They would spend a little time taking care of guild. Business, and they would spend a lot of time drinking and partying, which included the sharing of common meals, sacrifice to their guardian God, and engaging in sexual immorality. Okay? So as you might imagine, the members of the church in Thyatira had a problem. If you wanted to get a job in the city, you had to belong to a trade guild and take part in its functions, in its activities. It was an all or nothing deal. You couldn't say, I need a job, I'll join your guild, but I don't want to take part in the idol worship and the parties, because that would not fly in Thyatira. So Christians were torn between employment, which meant having to be part of a guild, and on the other hand, staying faithful to the Lord and His righteous standards, and consequently giving up all hope of making a living in the city. So the Christians were faced with a real dilemma in Thyatira. And as you might imagine, it impacted their small church. As I said earlier, Thyatira was the smallest of seven cities. But this small church in this small city would receive the longest letter from the Lord. That's both encouraging and at the same time sobering. As it reminds us that small churches in small places really do matter to God. We matter to God. But it also suggests that big trouble can occur in small places, which require God's attention. So, yes, God is watching the apples, but He's also watching the chocolate chip cookies. And they would learn this. So, let's look at our letter. Revelation chapter 2, and we will begin with verse 18. Okay, Revelation 2, verse 18. Are you there? Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The Son of God. Who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Let's stop right there. In this verse, Jesus says something about himself. He does not say anywhere else in the book of Revelation. Nowhere else. He identifies himself as the Son of God. Referring to his deity. In Jewish thought, to be a son of a person meant you had the same nature of that person. So the Son of God, Jesus, has the same divine nature, the same holy nature, the same righteous nature of God. And pointing out this truth may have been necessary to address the situation in this church. We are told the Lord's eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze. Some translations may say brass. This symbolic image, and it's symbolic, okay, of flaming eyes speaks to the Lord's ability to see everything and know everything. Nothing is hidden from him. The Lord looks on the inside, seeing what does not appear on the outside. In regards to his feet of bronze, which was the hardest metal at that time, this likely speaks to his unlimited power and his authority to judge. So based on the Lord's serious and somewhat fearful introduction to this church it would seem that one of those uh uh-oh moments is coming up next so Jesus continues and says in verse 19 let me read this to you I know your deeds and your love and faith And service. And perseverance. And that your deeds of late. Are greater. Than at first. Jesus said. I know what you're doing. I see your deeds. I see the love. And I see the faith you have. I see your service. And your patience. And I see that your deeds are. Are growing. In light of his serious and somewhat fearful introduction, we may not have expected these words from Jesus, but here they are. This church actually had works of love and service. They showed care and interest and concern for others. Unlike the church in Ephesus, which was an unloving church. Jesus gave them an A plus for their deeds to others. Their ministry was growing. Growing in faith, growing in love, growing in hope. And that growth was seen in the way they worshipped and served and reached out to others. Jesus even commended them for their faith. They sincerely trusted in Him. These are nice, hard-working, faithful, loving people. This sounds like an ideal church, does it not? And on top of that, it does not appear this church was being persecuted by the Jews or the Romans. It would seem they are being completely left alone. So what could have prompted the Lord's imagery of his fiery eyes and his feet of bronze. Well, let's find out. Look at verses 20 and 21. But. That's a big little word, isn't it? Not a good word to hear. <laughs> I love you, but. <laughs> but. But. I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bond servants astray. So that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed the idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Let's stop there. Despite the faithfulness and the love and the ministry of many in this church, Jesus identified two other groups of people in this seemingly fractured church. Those who were engaged in wickedness and those who tolerated the wickedness and looked the other way. Jesus pointed out that those engaged in the wickedness were corrupted by a woman symbolically named Jezebel. I say symbolically because who names their daughter Jezebel after? It's, just... <laughs> it's like naming your son Judas. Who does that? We know that name from the Old Testament, don't we? If you recall Jezebel was an evil woman mentioned in 1st and 2nd Kings. She was married to Ahab who was a wicked king of Israel, likely the worst king Israel ever had. Yes, Ahab was the king But it was Jezebel who seemed to pull the strings, especially when it came to matters related to their religious policies. Jezebel was devoted to the Canaanite religion of Baal worship. The Canaanites worshiped Baal as their sun god, as their storm god. And also as their fertility god. And as such, sexual immorality was at the root of their pagan rituals. When Jezebel became queen, she first turned the heart of the king. Then she turned the hearts of Israel to worship Baal on a national scale. It was Jezebel who persuaded her husband to build an altar in Samaria dedicated to Baal. In addition, it was Jezebel who murdered the prophets of God. In fact, she tried to kill the prophet Elijah after he challenged 450 of her pagan priests on Mount Carmel. Remember that? And then he goes Samson on them and slaughters them all with a sword. She did not like that. So that's the Jezebel in the Old Testament. And it appears we have a type of Jezebel in this church in Thyatira. But how could such a woman come to power? We're told that she called herself a prophetess, meaning she claimed to hear from God and to speak for God. Just like the first Jezebel, this woman was apparently clever and persuasive and she knew what strings to pull to get her way. This Jezebel had a reputation for teaching. And if we drop down to verse 24, we get a clue about her teaching, where Jesus describes it as the deep things of Satan. The deep things of Satan. People love a mystery, don't they? People love secrets. And it seems this Jezebel presented her teaching as being hidden from normal Christians. Just like those in cults, she claimed to possess the deep secrets, the unknown truths, to have special insight into the spiritual world which others did not have. And that was likely, that's what likely made her attractive to others and enticed her followers away from the simple gospel. It was just too simple for them. She claimed to be God's prophet when, in fact, she spoke for Satan. This Jezebel became a An influential leader. Deliberately encouraging Christians to disregard God's word and their own consciences. And to commit acts of immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. In context, it seems that this woman corrupted many in the church to go ahead And participate in the activities of the trade guilds to protect their livelihoods. This Jezebel was saying, in effect, it's all right to go ahead and be part of the trade guild and to participate in their pagan worship and in their immoral activities. Don't worry about it. After all, you need to make a living. God has told me it's all right. Because what you do with your body doesn't impact your soul. You can take part in their activities and still be a good Christian. In other words, You can live like the devil from Monday to Saturday, but just make sure you're in church on Sunday and it'll be okay. Her teaching was dead wrong. It was deceptive and it was from the devil. And for some, for some in this church, it was exactly what they wanted to hear. Do what you want, when you want, and with whom you want. It's all good with God. You can have your cake and your ice cream too. It's what they wanted to hear. Obviously this was a problem in the church. But it wasn't the only problem in this church. There were people in this church who saw the wickedness for what it was. They knew the teaching of this Jezebel was sinful. They understood that God is holy and righteous. And yet... They chose to look the other way. They decided to stay in their own lane, if you will. To not get involved in another's business. Their motto was, if you want to come to our church and believe what you want and do what you want. That's not our concern. Boy that is relevant. In the here and now. Isn't it? We live in a culture. Where biblical doctrine. Is considered outdated. And almost meaningless. And sinful activities. Are tolerated and are not called out for what they truly are. I mean, God forbid that we point out that sin is actually sin. And to really go overboard, I mean, really out on a limb, let's not mention the wages of sin. Or the existence of a real hell. Because if we do. We will be labeled. As intolerant. And hateful. And judgmental. Let's talk about that for a moment. Because I want to clarify something that may be confusing. Okay. Jesus told us. In Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. You may know this verse. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. You know that verse? Have you heard that verse? Do not judge so that you will not be judged. This is a very misunderstood and often misused verse. A verse used by well-meaning Christians as a license to turn the other way and not to get involved. From this verse, some have taken it to mean that we are not to engage in any type of evaluation of others, suggesting we cannot say a person's behavior is wrong. But that's not right. For there are many passages that tell us otherwise. For example, just a few verses down the road, we are told by Jesus, you will know a tree by its fruit. How can you do that without some sort of evaluation? So then what is Jesus saying here? In Matthew 7, verse 1, the Greek word for judge is kirino. And in context, it speaks of someone who sits in judgment to condemn. And when we judge in this way, we are in effect putting on the robe, sitting in the judge's seat, taking the gavel, And rendering condemnation according to our own standards of what is right and what is wrong. And Jesus said we can't do that, especially because our own standards tend to be self-centered and hypocritical. We can't even keep our own standards. You know that's true. When I was a, a probation parole officer and later a supervisor, I interacted we're gonna that's a good word, I interacted <laughs> with many individuals who disagreed with me because they wanted the freedom to do what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. And oftentimes I would pull out their case file. And we would review their original sentence given to them by the judge. In their sentence from the judge, my role was defined. And their conditions of supervision were clearly spelled out. It was the judge who said what they could do and what they could not do. It was the judge who drew a line in the sand that they could not cross without consequences. It was the judge who did that, not me. My role was to evaluate, to motivate, to confront if necessary, and to enforce the judge's sentence. In the same way, it is God who is the righteous judge. And it is He who determines what is sinful and what is not. And God has explained it in His Word. Christians are not being judgmental if they are simply pointing out in love what God has already said to them. They are His Standards of right and wrong. And it is he who has drawn the doctrinal and moral line in the sand. Not you and me. If God has called something sin, then it is sin. And we need to lovingly, and I do mean lovingly, call it out and confront it. If necessary. It is never wrong to call wrong what God calls wrong. It is never wrong to call wrong what God calls wrong. But it needs to be done in the right way and in the right spirit. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7. For some in the church in Thyatira, they recognized the sin of this Jezebel and her followers. But they would not call it out. And they would not confront it. Instead, they tolerated the sin and looked the other way. And that was a problem in this fractured There were some who were faithful. There were some who were engaged in wickedness. And there were some who looked the other way and did not want to get involved. Well, Jesus has something to say about all of this. Beginning with verse 22. He says, This is coming from the Lord. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds and I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who, do, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. We are told that because this woman refused to repent, she would suffer severely. Her punishment would fit her crime. She used her bed to commit adultery. Likely both physically and spiritually. And she would now be condemned to affliction in her bed. Which some interpret as her death. Her children, those who followed her teaching and were unwilling to repent. They too would find punishment and death because they ignored God's word. Jesus said the punishment would be so dramatic, so dramatic, that all the churches would know that the Lord searches the minds and the hearts. He turns over every stone. And he shines a very bright light in the darkest of closets. And he will make no mistake when he renders his judgment. This is some serious stuff coming from Jesus, isn't it? If you recall, when we first dived into this book, I mentioned we would see Jesus in a different light compared to his earthly ministry. We might think of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And he is the Lamb of God. But as we make our way through this book, he is also portrayed as a ferocious lion. And he is no joke. Now in these last few verses, Jesus has something to say to the faithful in this church. Beginning with verse 25, he says, Nevertheless, What you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod as the vessels of of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus has nothing negative to say about the faithful in this church. Rather, he encourages them to hold fast and he gives them two promises. Referring to Psalm chapter 2. Jesus says that he will give his true followers authority over the nations. This clearly refers to the millennial kingdom. A thousand year reign where Christ sets up his earthly kingdom after his return to the earth. Jesus will have the ultimate authority over all nations. And here Jesus says that his followers will share in his rule. We will reign with him just like a shepherd who cares for his flock. A second reward for the overcomer is to receive the morning star. Morning stars only appear after the night is over and when the morning dawns. We don't get an explanation as to what this means. However, a key, a possible key, to interpret this reference might be found in Revelation chapter 22 verse 16 where Christ is called the bright morning star. So this second reward could be fellowship with Christ himself, which would be the greatest reward of all. So what do we take from this church in Thyatira? There are a couple things. First, be careful who you listen to. And that includes me as well. It includes me as well. Just because someone calls themselves a preacher or a teacher, just because they pastor a church, even a mega church, just because they have a TV show, just because they have a charming personality and a smile to match, does not mean they speak for the Lord and proclaim His truth. Be careful because in the last days we are told there will be preachers and teachers just like this Jezebel who will teach you exactly what you want to hear. Be careful. This leads to my next point, And that is people... Just don't want to hear the truth. There was a story about a man who smoked cigarettes. He began reading articles on cigarettes and became alarmed by the strong connection between smoking and lung cancer. Alarmed. One day, he finally confided in a friend and said, I've been reading so many articles about smoking and lung cancer that I've decided to quit reading. He didn't decide to quit smoking, but to quit reading. That's what many people do when confronted about the truth of their sin. They put aside the truth to continue to live a harmful and sinful lie. Unfortunately, they will face the truth one day, and there will be no excuse. No excuse. And lastly, <clears throat> what God calls a sin is sin. And we can't see it any other way. In our day and culture, we are pressured, pressured to be tolerant of just about everything in this world. And if we are not tolerant of the actions and the behaviors and the lifestyles that God calls sinful then we are labeled as phobic and judgmental and hateful i don't i don't like these labels But as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't have the option to tolerate what God won't tolerate. We can't call right what God calls wrong. We can't be Christians who pick and choose what we believe about sin from God's Word. We can't accept sinful actions. We can't validate sinful behaviors. And we can't approve of sinful lifestyles. For if we do, we become no different than those in the church of Thyatira who tolerated sin instead we need to be a people who first and foremost are in love with Jesus Christ and then we are to be a people who sincerely love one another and that may include lovingly Dealing with sin. It's not being hateful. It's not being intolerant. And it's not being judgmental. Rather, it is just being faithful and obedient to the Lord. And loving others. Just like He loves us. And points out our own sin. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time and in, in your word. I thank you for this church in Thyatira. It could be a church today. Father, forgive us. Forgive me. For more times than not, Turning the other way, choosing to stick my head in the sand, not wanting to get involved, not wanting to get in another person's business. Father, I believe we are our brother's keeper. And sometimes that involves calling out sin in a loving way. Father, I pray that you'd help us to do that. Help us to love you and to love our brothers and our sisters and all that that entails. May you be honored and glorified in us. Give us courage, Father. Give us boldness. And give us love, Father. To deal with the sin in our lives and in the lives of others. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh. <clears throat> I will tell you that... Uh this message made me really nervous. Very apprehensive. Let me explain why. We tend to be people and I'm just I'm just I'm not just I'm, not, I'm just I'm speaking people just everywhere. We tend to be people who go to extremes one way and swing the other way, right? So we talked about the church in Thyatira, and, and the, again, there were some who just chose to look the other way, to not get involved, not my business, no, 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 right? Hear no evil, see no evil, right? That's over here to the extreme. I fear sometimes though that that we can swing over here and then become just hyper critical of sinners. Right? We go from you know turning a blind eye to the sin and then coming after coming after the sinners. In essence, what happens is we move from the church of Thyatira, who was very loving. They were a loving church, right? But tolerated sin. And we swing over here to being a church in Ephesus, who was doctrinally sound, doctrinally pure, but they were unloving. We swing the other direction. They became hypercritical and judgmental of everybody. They started attacking people instead of instead of dealing with behavior, they started attacking people. And there's a difference in there. That's where I fear. I don't. I don't want to create a church. I don't want a church where everybody's wearing these badges, and just that. That would be that would be the church in Ephesus. That's where I get apprehensive sometimes. We can't can't go there. And the Bible gives us some clear instructions in Matthew chapter 18 as to how to deal deal with sin in the church. And it's done in a loving way. With with this attitude of a win-win where everybody wins. That's the goal. When we restore fellowship. That's the goal. Matthew 18. So anyway, this was the church in in, in Thyatira. It was a hard message. Also a message that's very relevant today. Very relevant today. And I know we get pressured. We get pressured. Even in our own families. Even in our own families. We're pressured. It's hard. It's hard. I understand. But we can do it in a loving way. We can do it in a loving way. If you're here this morning, I, I hope the Lord spoke to you. Pray that you'd respond to Him. If He wants you to do something. If you're looking for a church to join... Love to have you. Let me know. If you need someone to pray with you, I'd love to pray with you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd like to tell you about Him. Whatever the Lord lays on your heart this morning, whatever the Lord lays on your heart, I just pray you'd respond to Him in obedience. He loves you. He loves you. Let me close us in prayer. I'll pray for our for our offering this morning and then also for our fellowship. Father, I just thank you so much again for your love and your mercy. I thank you, Lord God, for your watchfulness over us. Father, I'm encouraged that you do. You, you see everything. You turn over every stone. You're, you're in every closet, Father, and you're so gracious and kind to point out our own our own misgivings. And Father, I think it's probably where it starts, that we just that we just, we just realize that we, we also hurt and that we also fall short of your standards. So, Father, don't let us become hypocritical. And, Father, help us to not judge other people by our own self-serving standards. Father, help us to know your word. Help us to live by your word, Lord God. And, Father, help us to be an example to those around us to live according to your standards. Thank you, Father. Lord, bless our bless our, our, our offering this morning, Lord God. I pray that you would just use it for your honor and for your glory. Father, give us wisdom uh, as we uh, use your funds. Father, bless the gift and the giver. And Father, for our fellowship, Lord God, I just pray for a sweet fellowship. And Heavenly Father, I, I, I pray that Uh, you would bless those who have brought and, and prepared food, and bless all of us, Father, as we partake in it. Thank you, Lord God, for who you are and what you've done. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.